your Bible with me and find your place, and it'll also be on the screen for you. Daniel chapter 9, verse 12. We continue talking about Daniel's prayer here. Boy, I tell you, it's been a great journey through this book thus far, but I have probably enjoyed um, studying his prayer as much as any part of the passages that we've looked at thus far in this entire book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 12. If you're physically able, would you stand with me in honor and reverence to the reading of God's Word? Daniel chapter 9, verse 12. Notice what God's Word says. It says, And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us, by bringing, us, bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done <clears throat> as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept this disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because... For our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are reproach to all those around us. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations, and the city which is called by your name, for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Father, in the sweet name of Jesus, I thank you for your word. Now, Father, I pray that we would receive it joyfully. We would receive it gladly. And, God, that we would respond appropriately. And that we would respond obediently to what you command us to do this day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Today, we're talking about the holiness of a prayer warrior. Let me just revisit a couple of things. As you know, we've been studying this prayer of Daniel for a few weeks now. We began three weeks ago, which was this will be our fourth week in looking at this prayer. And on that first week, we just did an overview and gave you six principles of what it means to be a prayer warrior that we saw demonstrating the life of Daniel. Then the next week, we began to go deeper into those principles, and we just took two of those principles. And we talked about the heart of a prayer warrior, how his heart was clearly seen in the way he communicated with God. 
Then last week we talked about the humility of a prayer warrior when Daniel humbly calls upon God and trusts him and gives us another vivid biblical illustration of a humble prayer warrior. Now today we're going to complete this section of chapter 9 as we talk about the holiness of a prayer warrior. Now this study will cause us to examine the character, the conviction, and the compassion that's exhibited by Daniel as he calls on the Lord. A character is exhibited because Daniel was one who constantly maintained his personal integrity. And he never compromised his integrity regardless of the consequences. He demonstrates conviction because he remained to be a true man of prayer regardless of even if it meant physical harm or physical death. And he also demonstrates compassion because he showed his care for people as he goes before God on their behalf. You see, Daniel confesses, as I read this week, the reality of his sin and the people's sin because he's been called. He's been called for a specific purpose, and that was to carry the burdens there of the people as his own, even though he did not personally cause the burden. He feels responsible for the people under his care. What a wonderful example Daniel is of one who cares for the needs of others more than just his own. You see, Daniel understood something. He understood that God's standard for righteousness was clear, and he also understood that he, along with God, was heartbroken over the spiritual condition of his people. Now, as we talk about that word holiness today, let me just clarify a couple of things. Here in the Bible Belt, if we're not careful, when we hear the word holiness, people will refer that to a certain denomination or group of followers of Jesus Christ. You've heard it said before, oh, that's them holiness people. Y'all heard that? Them holiness people get up excited and they might just run up and down them piles. Amen. I mean, you, you know, you heard that, the, the holiness people, right? Well, I, I want you to know something. Holiness is not a denomination, and it's not a group of people. Uh, holiness is what should be demonstrated in the life of God's people because it was demonstrated in the life of Jesus Christ. And if we're Christians, that means that our life is consistent with what we read in the life of Jesus from Scripture, and we demonstrate His lifestyle, characteristics, and qualities. The Bible talks to us about the subject of holiness on many subjects, but I just want to mention a few. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, that God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. It's a call of God to be clean before God. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness. Pursue holiness, because without which no one will see the Lord. Well, I'm glad to say to you today that all my righteousness, as we'll talk about in a little bit, it's not very beautiful. It's dirty in the eyes of God. But thanks be to God, through the blood of Calvary, my righteousness that I have today is not any of my own. It is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And for my accounting friends, you know the word impute means to put to one's account. It means that God, through Jesus Christ, put righteousness to our account not that we had any in our account to begin with because we were all spiritually bankrupt and lost before God, but because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, 
We can pursue peace with all men, and we can pursue holiness. I believe Daniel is a wonderful example of that. We'll see that today. Today we'll look at principle 5 and 6, which are the last two principles I gave you from our beginning study as we overviewed this prayer. But there are two principles we'll look at today, and I want to expound upon those as God will help us today. The first one I want you to notice is that intimate communication with God requires the realization of the nearness of the judgment of God. Intimate communication with God, it requires the realization or the recognition of the nearness of the judgment of God. Well, we read about that in Daniel's day, then we'll be true, sure and true to apply it to our day. Daniel begins talking about this when he gives us the confirmation of destruction. Verses 12 through 15 teach us of that. Let me share with you what the great Bible teacher John Phillips said of this subject. He said, long after Moses was dead, God sent other prophets to warn the nation of Israel against sin and judgment that was certain to come. Isaiah had preached it with eloquence. Amos spelled it out in cold logic. Hosea had his heart broken. Habakkuk had wrestled with this problem. Jeremiah had wept his heart out over the nation's sins. Ezekiel had resorted to signs, yet the people remained deaf to what the prophets had proclaimed. Did you hear that? What an indictment on the nation of Israel. They remained deaf to what the prophets had complained. You see, even though other nations had experienced difficulty and destruction, Daniel reveals that God's punishment on Israel was unlike anything that had been seen in the world to that point in history. The sad reality is they still would not repent. It makes me think sometimes the way it is in our day. God has called men of God to carry the word of God, preach the word of God, and be filled with his spirit and do his work. And the men of God stand and proclaim that judgment is coming. But just like in the days of Daniel, the words of judgment that is coming are falling upon deaf ears and few are doing anything to prepare to get ready for judgment because they feel as though if it hasn't happened yet, it probably never will. The fact of the matter is, is even though it hasn't happened yet, the fact that judgment is coming is 100% sure. So when we look at this confirmation of destruction, Daniel is saying what God said is coming is coming. He gives us some reasons for that. The first reason is found in verse 13 when he talks about a resistance to the truth. You see, Daniel reminded the people of his prior warnings. <laughs> he reminded them that God had did exactly what he was going to do. What he said he would do, he has done. Daniel was broken before the people over their lack of repentance. I want to tell you that's one of the most heartbreaking things today for men of God is that we preach the Word of God, one, that we've been called by God to do it, and two, we sincerely care about the people of God. And because of that, when there's a lack of brokenness and repentance over known sin, it is heartbreaking because we realize not only is it doing great damage to you as an individual, but it's doing great damage to those around you, your church, your community, and beyond. You see, the history of Israel reveals 
a series of repeated resistance to completely follow the Lord. God sent a lot of warnings. God sent a lot of prophets. God sent a lot of messages, but yet they were unheeded. Oh, yes, there were some times during their history that they did experience revival. There was a revival in the days of Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29, where I tell you, Hezekiah, he decided he was going to be different than his daddy. His daddy Ahaz was a mess. His daddy Ahaz was a pagan. His daddy Ahaz had closed up the house of the Lord and done evil in the sight of God. Oh, but Hezekiah said, I'm not going to follow that cycle. I'm going to follow my new father. I'm going to follow Father God. And I'm not going to follow that cycle. I'm not going to do what's evil in the sight of God. But the scripture says this about Hezekiah, that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. What a testimony. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. There was great renovation done. There was great revival in his day. And after his death, something tragic happened. Manasseh took over, and when Manasseh took over, he led the peoples deeper into spiritual rebellion and wickedness than they had ever experienced in their history. There was revival in the days of Hezekiah, but when his life was over, the new leader led them away. Oh, there was also revival in the days of Josiah, the boy king. You've heard me talk about him through this series. At eight years of age, he becomes king, and at 26 years of age, they're renovating the temple, and they go in and they find a copy of the Word of God, the, the law, the first five books of your Old Testament. They read it and they get so moved by it, they take it back and they read it to him. He's moved by it. He tears his clothes in humility before God. And then revival begins to break out in the days of Josiah. But you know how long the revival lasted? Just as long as his life did. Then things began to change. Oh, in the days of Joshua, the Bible tells us that after him, that in each succeeding generation, things got spiritually weaker and weaker and weaker until eventually they were totally walked away from God. But from 605 B.C. to 586 B.C., Babylon had worked diligently in a repeated series of attacks to take full control of Jerusalem. At each stage in their conquest, the people failed to realize the danger that was coming and they failed to repent of their sin. How about today? Do you think God is trying to speak to us? Do you think God is trying to shout to us? Do you think God is trying through calamity in our world and nation and even through the voice of his modern-day prophets and preachers? I'm not talking about people foretelling the future. I'm talking about those who are declaring the Word of God, telling you what God says. Do you not think that God is trying to get our attention, but yet we still are reluctant to repent because we really don't realize that there's danger coming when, friends, there is? I'll tell you what I believe is happening today. I told him in the early service, I'll tell you too. I believe in this day we're living in now that Satan is roaring while the church is snoring. Just snoring, man. I'm telling you, just taking a siesta. And even in this day and time, it is a sad indictment upon the church. I mean, I'm telling you, folks ought to be praying. Folks ought to be crying out to God. Folks ought to be repenting of sin. Folks ought to be getting more right with God than they've ever been. But yet in our culture today, I still see people sliding further and further away and getting more numb and more numb and more numb to the voice of God. Wow, help us. We're experiencing a resistance to the truth of God in this culture today, and I can't understand why. 
But George Orwell, he was a secular author. You know, wrote the book 1984. Some of you remember that? But he's, he's said some things that are pretty spot on. And he said this. He said, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more they will hate those that speak it. What about our culture today? In some states, they are fining churches, closing them up, and even threatening to take the preacher to jail for standing there and preaching the Word of God and inviting people to come. And God blessed America, Marty. Oh, I know what you're saying. That never happened here in the heart of Dixie. <laughs> That never happened here, boy. Uh-uh, no, sir. No, that wouldn't happen here. Oh, we love our preachers. We love our churches. I want to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. That can happen anywhere under the sun. And I say today, and I say from all of my heart, it is time for the church to bow down before God, get our marching orders from God, and then stand up and go do what God said to do. And don't ever think for a minute that great calamity can't come upon us because we live in the south of the United States of America. We're in the Bible. But it means nothing. We live in a day where the gospel is under attack. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, you better stay to the truth. He said in John 8, 32, he said that you know the truth and the truth will make you free. And then John 14, 6, he said this, I am the truth. He is the truth. And when you rebel against the truth of God, you rebel against the Son of God. Y'all glad you came? <laughs> well, amen. Hey, listen to me. It's time. This milk toast and you know, preaching going on in this world today. Just you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And let's just try to make everybody just happy. I'm, I'm, there's a time. If there's ever been to get right with God, it's now. We need preachers who will tell it. <laughs> there's a resistance to truth, Mark. There's also rebellion to his voice. Notice that with me in verse 14. I know you already get to another verse, right? I believe it's imperative that God's people hear and heed God's voice. I learned this in Miss Sonia Adams' English class, that an imperative sentence is a command. Ain't that right? Actually, I learned it from Sally Wood because she was going to kill me if I didn't, right? <laughs> and I just took what I learned and passed it on down, right? It's a command. It means he's issuing a command. See, the Jews were in Babylon due to their repeated refusal to repent for their sins. They would have never been in bondage had they just listened to God. But sadly, you know what they did? They continued to refuse to repent. I mean, they're in bondage. They're exiled into pagan Babylon, and they still won't repent. You know what they were doing while they were, while they were in Babylon? Instead of saying, God, we got here because of our own sin. God, we got here because of our refusal to repent. God, we just want to call it what it is, and we just want to get right, and we want to confess it, and regardless of what you do with us, we want to be right with you. Instead of doing that, instead of seeking repentance, you know what they did? They prayed for God to bring judgment on Babylon while they were there. The 137th Psalm is all about them praying for judgment to fall on Babylon. Instead of getting right, they just say, just rain judgment on them while we're here so we can watch. <laughs> I want to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. Judgment was coming because the call to repent had not been obeyed. 
kind of like I was telling them earlier, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I, I find some things I like sometimes, right? I remember when Duck Dynasty first came out. I was hooked, man. I like that. I, I like rednecks because I is one of them, amen? <laughs> but I've been watching this show already. Anybody, does anybody watch Lone Star Lost? Glenn, Carrie, y'all. Can nobody else watch Lone Star Lost? You people are missing out. It's on the animal channel or planet, you know, whatever. I'm, but I started watching Lone Star Lost, and I think if I ever get to retire, I'm just going to go out to East Texas and just ride around with these guys. I don't want to deal with the satellite. Do you know if you kill a timber rattler there, you can go to jail? I mean, somebody kills a timber rattler in Alabama, we take a picture of it, go up to what used to be the Cleaver News or whatever. I mean, we, I mean, we put it on social media. Look at this, 18 and a button, baby, got him. You do that in Texas, they're going to knock on your door and say, that's a protected species, a rattlesnake. I don't understand that. I don't want to live in East Texas for that. But here's something I learned. I, you know, you're always looking for God to speak to you, aren't you? Aren't you? I always have God speak to you. All right, the Lone Star Law, I'm watching it. Here's what they do, man. You know what game wardens do. When game wardens show up, everybody straightens up and starts acting right, don't they? They see the game warden put up, oh, they did. But you know what? They find people all the time that won't buy a license. When they pull up, they start dumping fish. So I ain't caught nothing. I ain't been fishing. Or they pull up next to the boat and they say, hey, we want to do a water safety check. Uh, let's see, you got a, we need a life jacket for every person in the boat. Hold them up, hold them up. And that's okay, where's your fire extinguisher? A lot of people don't know where that is. And, um, and they say, well, have you got your boater safety education? No, I didn't know I was supposed to take boater safety. You got a license? No. Where are you from? I don't know. What's your name? Don't know. I mean, they all got, yeah, and here's what, had anything to drink? Any alcohol? Well, maybe two. Were they that big? I mean, I mean, this guy can't stand up, you know, and he's driving a boat. And they got people doing all this crazy stuff and all these different things. And, and, and you know what I found out, though? People don't like to tell the truth. We do that with God when we get caught, don't we? And more people are sorry that they get caught than sorry that they broke God's heart, right? But they'll come up and they'll say, okay, buddy, um, you don't have a license. You're fishing without a license. You don't have your fire extinguisher. You don't have your life jackets. You don't have your boater education. You ain't got any business, and you're breaking every law in the sun. You're intoxicated. So we're fitting to write you a series of citations. And so they get out their ticket book, and they start writing their citations, and they give them a copy of it, and they tell them this every time. They say, won't you sign right here on X? It's not a mission of guilt. It's just saying that you agree to contact the judge. Hmm. So as I was watching that, I began to say, I, I think I know, I think I see a spiritual uh, application to this. You know, there are so many times we read this book or we hear the preacher or, and, and God convicts us of personal sin. And we don't realize that God's already written us a citation. That citation says that we're all guilty. Guilty. And that the only way that that guilt can be removed is by talking to the judge. But you know what, Marty? At the end of that show, it'll always tell you what happens with these people. Do you know, you would be shocked at the numbers of people who get these citations, and look here, they're hefty. 
You go out and get some oysters that's too small out there in Corpus Christi Bay. I'm telling you, you're paying thousands, thousands, okay? And they get these citations, and at the end of the show, it'll say, so-and-so failed to contact the judge. He is a fugitive, and there is now a warrant for his arrest. <laughs> Let me tell you what that means. He is in big, big trouble. See, what they fail to remember is they take their copy of the citation, they fold it up, stick it in their pocket, start the fire with it, I don't know what they do with it, but they take it and they disregard that there has been a writing placed against them that means they are guilty of a crime. But they forgot something. Underneath their copy was another copy. That copy was carried to the judge. The judge still has a record of their citation that they have done nothing about. Do you know there are people all across the country today, even people who are members of Baptist churches and Methodist churches and Presbyterian churches and, and Pentecostal churches and holiness churches all down the line that have never went to the judge and allowed the judge to deal with their citation and plead the blood of Calvary to cleanse them from all sin and unrighteousness. They forgot that the judge has still got a copy. Hear me, friend. Daniel was broken before God, and he was saying, listen, these people, they're my people. And my people, they remain unchained. They remain unbroken. They remain unrepentant. Even though the nation of Israel had a history of rebellion and idolatry, they had suffered God's judgment in the past, but it has not driven them to godly grief and genuine repentance. God help us today to understand that what we see happening around us what we see happening right here before our eyes ought to be driving us to repentance and getting genuinely right with God. You know why Daniel said you better do that? Because he put it in verse 14. He said, God is righteous in all the works which he does. Wow. There's a third reason. is There was rejection of his name. You see, God had brought people out of Egyptian bondage. He had delivered them to the land that he prepared for them. But in spite of all of his goodness and grace, notice what Daniel said. And he put an exclamation point behind this. He said, we have done wickedly. You say, wicked, that's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, we had some pretty strong sin. But see, Daniel begins to make his petition before God, and he refers to the exodus in which God fulfilled his covenant with Abraham. He established his name among the nations, and his name had now been rejected by the very ones that he had delivered. Do you hear that today? That even in our day and time, the blood-bought church, even those that God went and sent his son to Calvary to redeem are rejecting the name of the one who bled and died for their sins. God help us. So how's God going to deal with that in our day? How will God deal with people? How will God deal with churches? How will God deal with nations that reject his name? More importantly, how is he going to deal with the very ones who reject him that he went to Calvary to deliver? I hear this a lot. Preacher, 
We need to ask God to get this nation back on its feet. We need to get back on our feet. We're reeling from this and reeling from that and reeling from chaos in the streets and reeling from pandemic and all this kind of stuff. I read something Billy Graham said this week I think is very fitting. He said to get nations back on their feet, we must first get down on our knees. Wow. Hey, look, if you're going to get back on your feet as a follower of Jesus Christ and walk strong and tall for the glory of God, then I'll tell you how you're going to have to get there. It's going to be by humbly submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in an altar of prayer. If this church will be strong in this day and time, if this church will not crumble to the demands of a pagan society, then it will not come any other way than us on our knees and face before God, allowing Him to empower us for the journey. It won't happen any other way. And if this nation will ever turn back to God, it will not come any other way. It won't come through a political party. It won't come through the new justice on the Supreme Court, no matter who it is. It will not come through those things. It will not come unless God's people get humble before Him and let Him do it. I can't do it, but He can. I'll share this other principle with you. It's the sixth principle that we talked about from the beginning, the final one from this chapter. And that principle is this. The intimate communication with God includes pleading with God for the mercy, forgiveness, and restoration that only He can supply. Pleading with God. Pleading with God for what? Mercy, forgiveness, and restoration that only He can supply. Well, let's walk through this last part of this prayer together. And let's notice Daniel's cry for restoration. Daniel wanted to see God do something awesome. And in this final section of Daniel's prayer, he begins to sincerely pour his heart out to God, and he demonstrates his belief that God is the only source of restoration for his people. Only God can do it. And here's what he had to say. He began by issuing a powerful prayer verse 16 what does he do he appeals to God how does he appeal to God he does so based on his righteousness and not his own personal righteousness you know I told you earlier about our righteousness is not very pretty in his sight Isaiah said of all of the personal righteousness we could ever muster up it would merely be filthy rags in the sight of God oh I think about that so many times we have nothing to offer God he has everything to offer us he also appeals in reference to two special places. Look in the text with me there. He talks about your city, capital Y, personal, your city, God, and your holy mountain. Two personal places. Why were they so special? Well, Yahweh God had a special relationship with Jerusalem. His holy hill is Mount Moriah, and you'll remember Mount Moriah from uh, uh, chapter 22 of the book of Genesis when God told Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him there. It's also the location of the temple where the holy place, and the holies of holies was located. Yet Daniel reinforces something. He said, our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. He's saying our fathers sinned and instead of breaking the cycle, we continued the cycle and we've sinned. 
And he said it's very important we understand that God's anger and fury had come upon them and bondage there in Babylon was a result of their repeated iniquities and sin. But what's amazing to me is he said that it has become a reproach to all those around us. Now you listen to this. The sin and rebellion of God's people had a negative effect on them and it reached even beyond their borders to all those around them. You, you've heard people say it, and I have so many times in ministry. I've heard people tell me, say, look here, I'm telling you, preacher, what I do is my business. And it ain't hurting nobody but me. That's what they do. It's not hurting anybody else. It's not affecting anybody else. My business, I've had people tell me that so many times. I had this man once tell me who had a wife who was sick and dying in a nursing home that it was okay that God had given him the green light and God had told him it was okay to begin an adulterous affair with another woman. God told him that was okay. There's only one problem with that. I didn't find that here. I didn't find it. And I thought to myself, he was very adamant. He said, I do what I want to do. It's none of your business. And I can begin this affair and I can carry it on. It's not an affair. It's a relationship. God, God sent her to me. I've had people have double standards. I've had people say, you know, they, they think it's okay, you know, to go down to the steakhouse and kick up their heels and drink the tall boys and all that kind of stuff, get intoxicated, and they, and they tell me, preacher, that's my business. It ain't hurting nobody but me. And I say, well, what if I did that? Well, preacher, that ain't right. I said, what if you came down there and you saw me doing what you're doing? You, that ain't right, preacher. You're the preacher. I just want you to know God don't have standards like that. God demands righteousness of all those he's redeemed. Amen? Whether you're the preacher, the deacon, the Sunday school teacher, no matter what you do, whether you sing in the choir, well, 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 no matter what you do, God has demanded that his redeemed people would live sober, righteous, and holy lives. But preacher, I don't like. It really don't matter. I don't like having to tell you that. I've had people tell me before, say, you know what, you're so narrow. I don't like you narrow preaching. You're so narrow. And I say, yeah, let me remind you what Jesus said. He said, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life everlasting. Oh, if you want to find the broad way that leads to destruction, it's out there. You can find a church that will accommodate your behavior. But I'm telling you something right now. Until Jesus calls me home, this book is going to be supreme. It's going to be the guidebook. It's going to be the rule book. It's what's going to guide my heart and life. And I'm going to preach it. Why? Because I care about you. If I didn't care about you, I'd say, go do what you want to do. But I can't do that because God put the care in me. Y'all still glad you came? <laughs> I promise you, the reason I'm telling you this stuff today is because I love you. I really, really love you. And I don't want to see you ruin your life. He said, our sin 
is affecting everybody in our circle. And it's even affecting those on the border of our circle. Now let me help you. There are people who are lost without God who have heard you are a Christian. They have heard that you are a follower of Jesus. And they're looking to see if it's true. If it's true, you could be responsible for leading a testimony that drew them to Christ. If it's not true, you could be responsible for giving them a counterfeit picture of a holy Savior that might drive them further away from God. Let's move on. Powerful prayer. It's also a passionate plea. Here's what Arthur Pink said. Prayer is not so much an act as it is an attitude, an attitude of dependency and dependency upon God. Listen, when you read verses 17, 18, and into 19, you can feel the energy in which Daniel calls on the Lord. Look at these phrases. He says, hear the prayer of your servant. Oh, when's the last time you got down and said, oh, God, hear me. He said, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary. He said, Lord, shine on us again. Daniel's heart was broken over the desolation of the temple. But if Daniel's heart was broken, what about God's heart? Fast forward to 2020 again. A year like we've never seen. Twin hurricanes in the Gulf, worldwide pandemic, riders marching up and down the streets and everything else. Huh. Is your heart broken? If you're watching with let me ask you, everybody, if you're watching online, get in close. Get up real close to the screen. Get in here with us, okay? Is your heart broken over the casual nature with which people approach God's holy business? I don't think in over this November the 14th will be 27 years I've been a pastor and over 34 in ministry. I've never had a time that my heart's been more broke for God's people than it is now. Because you know what I know Satan's trying to do? He's trying to lay traps. He's pulling up weights. He's making sin look pretty. And he's doing anything he can to ensnare God's people and pull you away from God's purpose for your life. What about a hurting world? What do they see of the church in this hour? I love Mark Hall, wonderful songwriter. You know him from Casting Crowns. Just a regular guy. He suffers from dyslexia. He's like me. He's got ADD. They didn't know what to call it when I went to school. It's just that boy needs to go see Mr. Moore. That's what's wrong with him. <laughs> he went to Baptist College of Florida, and they took the test, the entrance exam for the school of music, and they told him based on his handicaps, he probably needed to pick another major. Don't you want to go find that guy that told him that? <laughs> I'd say they've been remotely successful. 
But I tell you what's even more important than that is that they're faithful. He wrote a song called Jesus, Friend of Sinners. It's one of my favorite ones. He said in that song, Jesus, Friend of Sinners, open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing finger. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open hearts and open doors. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts for what breaks yours. If your heart's not broken yet, I don't know what it's going to take to get there. But I pray that if it's not, that God will break your heart for what breaks yours. Notice with me finally, verse 19, we'll talk about a persistent petition. I told them in the first service, they taught us in the seminary to never say the word finally when we were wrapping up a sermon, and I, I disobey all the time. I tell them I like to use that word. I use it several times every sermon. <laughs> hey, you know what? When you got something to say, it's okay, isn't it? When your heart's full and you spent time with God, you've been barefooted before the burning bush, it's okay to get up here and say what God's put in your heart. I just worry about those preachers who just ain't got nothing to say. And it's reading out of some manual or, you know, or just, you know, just flippantly going through ministry. I mean, I'll tell you what, you get with it. I get worried about these. Well, I ain't got nothing to say. I heard a story this week of a preacher got up before his congregation and said, you know, God ain't gave me nothing, so we're just going to sing two more songs and go to the house. I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd find me another Baptist church. <laughs> Y'all thinking, woo, well, I'm just telling you right now, you know what? You know when you ain't got nothing to say is when you ain't been in this book. Because you know what this book will give you? 66 books full of stuff to say. Amen. Just get in the book, man. You'll have something to say. Golly, it breaks. No wonder we're snoring. All right. I am winding this thing up or I'm landing this plane, okay? Verse 19. Marty likes this when I use musical terms. But it shows my musical knowledge, don't it, Marty? And my favorite musical word is crescendo. It means we're building up something with something. Oomph, right? That's what Daniel's doing. He's, he's bringing his best before God. The crescendo of his prayer right here in verse 19. And look at it with me. Three times he says the name Lord. Four times he uses the personal pronoun your. So seven times in that verse, he gets personal with God. <laughs> Alfred Tennyson said this, more things are wrought by prayer than the world dreams of. Isn't that amazing? But here's David's petition. Notice. He said, Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen. Lord, act. Lord, do not delay. Why? Because he said this is your city. He said these are your people. You know what Daniel does? He prays one of the most selfless prayers recorded in Scripture because he's interceding on behalf of others. Now look here with me. Who does that sound like? It's kind of like you're a little child in Sunday school. The teacher asks a question. What's the answer all the little kids say? Jesus, right? If that was your answer, you're right. 
It sounds a whole lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Didn't Jesus pray a pretty selfless prayer in Gethsemane? In Gethsemane, the Bible said that he was in such anguish that his sweat became his drops of blood. And you know there are people that mocked that for years, but we found out even through medical science that that is 100% actually true, that your body in its deepest moments of pain and anguish, sweat, blood drops can literally come from your skin. Did you know that? Y'all didn't know I knew medical stuff either, not just musical, but medical, right? No, I read MRD on the chemistry of blood. Man, that's good stuff. But listen to me. Here, listen. Jesus said, Lord... If it's your will, let this cup pass. This cup, this bitter cup of the wrath of God, let it pass from me. But then he said the sweetest words. Outside the name Jesus, this is one of the sweetest words in the New Testament. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. Not my will, but thine be done. You know, Jesus used that one other time when he met John the Baptist at his baptism. John said, I'll baptize. I'm not even worthy to unlace his shoelaces. Jesus didn't say, oh, John, I crown you worthy. You're worthy. No, no, no. He said, nevertheless, suffer it to be so. Do you know why both of those things, the times he used nevertheless, why they're so critical? Because both acts, his baptism and his crucifixion, were fulfillments of the obedience of his father. Do you know what drove him to Calvary? Obedience to his father's will. And through that, he purchased redemption for all mankind. You know, I was in the back a little bit ago, and they... Steve and Tim, y'all had uh, Crowder singing a little because he lives. I can face tomorrow. He said, an empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. If he'd go to a cross and bleed and die for us, why, oh why, won't we just repent Stop resisting and trust him with everything. Why won't we become a prayer warrior like David? What do you think? Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. Lord, I can almost picture myself in knelt down in a prayer closet with Daniel. And I can almost hear his voice as I read the words. Lord, I don't know what his voice sounded like, and it don't matter, but I can just almost hear him pleading, saying, Lord, hear us. Lord, act. Lord, do not delay. Because, Lord, here we are centuries later, many centuries later, in a world that is still desperate for your mighty hand to move among us. God, draw us to repentance and may we be faithful to do so.
God move among us in ways that we can't imagine and use us for your glory. My most humble prayer. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hey, I want you to look this way just a minute before we dismiss because this is the most important part of everything we talk about. It's not just what you've received, but how are you going to respond? What you going to do with it? Because a coach can prepare a team, a preacher can preach to a church, a teacher can prepare a class for a test, a game warden can write you a citation, but you're going to have to deal with what's been given to you. When I woke this morning, I had a real, I was, I had a, y'all can imagine, my heart was heavy. And that's how I know the burden of the word of the Lord. You know, Jeremiah talked about that, didn't he? Had the burden from the word of the Lord was on me, I know. You know what that feels like? The burden was to tell you without holding anything back. And I pray that I, I always say to the Lord, I say, God, I've done what you've put me here to do today. But I'm pleading with you to respond right. I'm pleading with you to take whatever it is to the Lord. If you need help, I'm here. I don't go anywhere. I got my mask. I told him earlier I keep a box in my truck in case anybody. I mean, I'm, I'm ready. I want to be ready to whatever happens. Sometimes I can't find them because that ADD kicks in. You know? But I do find them. But I got right here. And I want to help you. Because whatever you need from the Lord is more important to me than anything I got to do today. I want to share something we had shared earlier and I'm done. Sometimes you make mistakes and you think you've made God mad and you're just done, nothing you can do about it. But I want you to know, and you hear me say this a lot, we don't throw rocks, we throw ropes. And regardless of what mistakes, it doesn't matter. The blood of Jesus cleanses all unrighteousness. Y'all believe that? I do. I have a good friend who's been a pastor for many years. He's the friend I told y'all about that I met him in line for a water slide at Whitewater with my kids when they were little. Started, we were waiting to ride. Figured while I'm here, let's make a friend, right? We all said, I made a friend. He became a dear friend. We ended up being in the same seminary class. And I preached revival in his church in Georgia, way on the other side of Georgia. And uh, spent a week with him over there, sweet family, sweet church. Been there, was there 22 years, I think, a long time. And I noticed, you know, he'd kind of uh, gone, you know, under the radar and lost contact with him, tried to reach out to him, couldn't get any calls back until I knew something was wrong. And finally, today I got a message and realized what it was. A year ago today, my friend, past many years, uh, he hit the wall. Hit the wall mentally, spiritually, psychologically, and had to come clean. My friend had been enduring a lot of stress, and I'll tell you, ministry is a lot of stress. And he didn't, got to a point he didn't handle it right, didn't know who to talk to, didn't talk to anybody, and began to medicate himself, and he began to medicate himself with alcohol. And when you medicate yourself with alcohol, here's what happens. It takes a little bit, and then it takes a little more, and a little more, and a little more, and then it takes a lot, and you got a problem. People say, I can control it. Well, no, you can't. You really can't control the poisonous snake, but you can do it. And so my friend, who's a pastor, seminary trained pastor, same church, 22 years, he, he had a 
problem and he didn't know where to turn to until it was too late. He said, a year ago today, I thought I'd lost my ministry. I was embarrassed, ashamed. I didn't know what to do. He said, but God put a group of godly men around me and helped me find repentance and restoration. And now, today, he's serving in another church in a ministry where his ministry have a worship service at 9.30 every Sunday morning called The Gathering. And the ministry is to help people who struggled with what he struggled with. You've heard of it. It's called Celebrate Recovery. It came out of Saddleback many years ago. It's all across the nation. But through Celebrate Recovery and through the Word of God, he is helping people get free from the bondage that he experienced. Now, you know what people can do? I know what the world does, and I know what self-righteous church people do. They say, some pastor, he has. Let me tell you something. Good man. Godly man. Godly father. Godly husband. Just a great love and compassion. Had a problem and didn't know where to turn. Now, let me tell you why I'm telling you that story. In this pandemic, I read articles every day. I read an article just two weeks ago. Why pastors are now falling on their own swords. They're talking about, you know, from the old church talk. Many pastors. The other day, seven reasons why your pastor is about to quit. I read them, okay? They're all these articles. That kind of stuff was happening before the pandemic. Listen. We better be praying like we never have because there are people under the gun. Satan is roaring. There are going to be pastors. There are going to be leaders. There are going to be people of all walks of life that are going to need help. to get. Because I'm telling you, there's a lot of people medicating themselves for the wrong things today, okay? We're not throwing rocks at them, whether you're in this room or whether you're online, whether you're beyond the borders. We're not throwing, we're saying people are going to need help. And I want to say, are we going to look down the world through the end of our pointing finger or are we going to be a friend to sinners? Jesus loves us. I'll tell you one other thing while I say that. I'm grateful to God to serve in a church, to serve with leaders, serve with deacons, to serve with stewardship team that's really sharing my heart for missions and investing in the next generation. One of the things we added to our missions budget this last year was an investment into hurting pastors called Rest Ministries. I really pray to continue this on. If I live in the retirement years, I pray that I spend the rest of my days investing in those that are hurting and are about to quit and need some help. Yeah. You know why? Because I've been to the point of wanting to quit so many times it ain't even funny, but God will throw the towel back at me and tell me to wipe my face. We're almost home, okay? All right? So listen, I want to help people not quit. And I want you to know it's ministries like that that you're investing in, that you're setting aside missions budget to assist in that will make a difference in pastors in the coming days. Oh, hear me. This stuff matters. This is what's going to matter on the other side. So would you pray for my friend? His name's Tim. He's a dear brother. I love him. I'm going to reach out to him again this week because I don't know how to get him. And I had no idea. I wish I had known. Sometimes you feel like, but you know what I'm grateful for? That God had other generals and other soldiers and other giants around him helping through that hard time, and it didn't quit. You know what one of my other seminary buddies told him today? He said, brother, it ain't how you start. It ain't even how you stumble. It's how you're going to finish. Ain't that good? You may be in the race today, and you may have stumbled. You may have skint your knees, skint your nose. You may be in pain. You may be ashamed. You may not know what to do, but I'm telling you right now, I want you to hear this preacher. This is God's heart my heart. If you've stumbled, we're here to help you get up. 
and we want to see you finish well. Amen? Because I believe y'all want me to finish well, don't you? I really do. I really do. And you know what? And, and if we help each other, we can all finish well. So I wanted to tell you that. I know it took another minute or two, but listen, that kind of stuff is real life. People sometimes think ministry is up here on the platform singing the praise songs and the hymns and the choruses and, and preaching. No, the real ministry happens when we walk off this stage and we're touching lives of people that are hurting. Just want you to know about those things because, listen, you know you matter to God. You know you matter to me. God loves you, and I love you. There ain't a thing you can do about it. Amen. Stand with us. Marty going to sing us out with little Andre soon and very soon.